Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everybody. Rick Thomas here, and we are doing Life Over Coffee. Had an individual come to our private forums, which is for our supporting community only, Uh, those folks who support us on a monthly or annual basis, they have an added benefit. They can come to our ministry on our private forums that are not accessible to anyone outside of our supporting community, and they can ask the questions that are important to them. By the way, if you're not supporting our ministry, well, there's a good reason to do it. It doesn't matter if you're doing biblical counseling. It doesn't matter if you're discipling other people, but you have important questions. And if you would like a come alongside friend or a come alongside community, I would encourage you to be a supporting member of our ministry and you get that added perk of our private forums just for you. And so this individual came and they asked the question, and this is an excellent question, and this is why I'm doing this podcast, because it applies to all of us. You're meeting with someone, you're meeting with Biff, and you want to know if Biff has changed. And so this individual is asking me, how can you know if a person that you're meeting with has changed? And this is what I told my lady friend. I said, you can't. You cannot know in the ultimate sense if a person has changed. It is impossible to know because the change that we are talking about is at the heart level and only God knows the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so in one sense, it would be dangerous to focus exclusively on whether a person has changed or not when in reality You cannot ultimately tell. That's why I titled this episode, The Risky Business of Looking for Change in Someone. If you want to read my show notes, please go to episode 454, The Risky Business of Looking for Change in Someone. And you can read the show notes, uh, the notes, the, the outline that I'm sharing with you here. You can listen to the podcast. You can watch the video as well. Biblical counselors make this mistake too often. And I know why. Because the whole reason that a person would come to biblical counseling is because they're looking for some kind of, of transformation. And so they come to the counseling office expecting for transformation to happen. And let's say that Bill Finn Mabel, they have a marriage problem. Let's say Biff committed adultery, for example, and Mabel wants to know if Biff has changed. By the way, I'm going to use that as an illustration a little later on uh, as a case study to walk through what I'm sharing with you now. And so Mabel wants to know, I mean, has Biff changed? Are we going to reconcile this relationship? I will reconcile this relationship if I know that he has changed. But now my biblical counselor is telling me that you can't know ultimately if he has changed. So how can you reconcile these two things? This distraught woman who wants to know that her husband is changed so that she can pursue the relationship and reconciliation with him. But you're telling me that you can't know if a person has truly changed And so help me to work through this. That is a counseling conundrum that we have to wrestle with. I want to be honest with the facts. And so if a person came to me, and I trust that you would have the same response. If someone came to you and said, can you tell if a person has changed? 
Well, what do you mean by changed? Have they changed externally? Have they amputated some things from their lives? Are they reading their Bible now when they haven't been reading it in years? Are they attending church meetings now when they didn't or kind of willy-nilly in the past? You know, are they more engaged with the family now when they weren't engaged in the past? Well, if that's what you're talking about, then yeah, they have changed. But that is not where change happens. Change happens in the heart, and we are not privileged with the insight to be able to inspect and examine the thoughts and intentions of a person's heart. Can a person look good on the outside and be dead on the inside? Absolutely. I mean, have you heard stories of people that that appear to be Christians, and then all of a sudden these these sinful and heinous things uh, begin to happen that they do. And you wonder, how could that be? They look like they were the, uh, the paragon of, of Christianity. But in reality, they're not. Well, what were we looking at? We, we can only look at external behaviors. Now, this could be troubling for many of us, and I understand that. But the truth is we have to speak honestly with each other because what we don't want to do is to create a a pretend or manufactured environment where we wish them into heaven or we hoped them into change or we see whatever it is that we want to see so that we can move forward in the relationship. There are two ditches here that you'll have to stay out of. One of the ditches is you cannot know ultimately if a person has changed. That is a fact if you're saying that transformation of the heart is what you're trying to assess. We can only look externally. The other ditch that you have to stay out of is suspicion and cynicism and fear. And so there will be some people who are just looking for any sign of change that they could hook their wagon to so they can move forward in the relationship when ultimately you can't know. And then over here, you have the fear-centered person or the cynic-centered person who is suspicious and cynical about, and they look at everything with an air of suspicion. Both of those would be wrong. In this middle space is wisdom, discernment, Christian maturity that can live comfortably in the mystery of not knowing while trusting not in what this person can or cannot do, but trusting God to guide them in this relationship. And so there has to be a better focus on better things. And I've just described a better focus and better things by dialing in on God and what he thinks about the situation and finding rest and comfort and peace in him rather than being controlled by the machinations of humanity. You see, if I place my faith in what he's doing or not doing, then, well, then I'm going to be oscillating with what he is doing or not doing. 
If I place my faith in God and what he thinks about these situations and even the mysteriousness of it, like not knowing the thoughts and intentions of the heart, I will be managed by God and not oscillating by human machinations and depravity and what they may and may not do. But I'll also not slide into the ditch of cynicism and suspicion and fear. And so the question is, can you know if a person has changed? And I'm modifying that by saying at the heart level, absolutely not. We cannot know. Therefore, the solution has to be a different focus that's looking at other things while laying out better expectations and better plans for the person that you are discipling. In our supported community, about a year or so ago, I did a brief review of the book Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. I'm not going to repeat all that here. It is on our private forum. But let me say it this way. The, the whole thesis, I mean, what Malcolm Gladwell was putting forth in his book Talking to Strangers is that it's, it's impossible to know if a person is telling the truth or not. And he makes a compelling and strong case for it. I highly recommend this book, by the way. Uh, it would rank in the top three or four of the best books that I read last year. Uh, it is really a tremendous book. And part of what he talks about in the book is that even the CIA, people who are trained to discern truth and lies, they fail at this more times than not uh, in trying to determine if a person is telling the truth or not, that even people who are trained to discern truth are not able to discern truth a majority of the time because it's impossible to tell if a person is telling the truth or telling a lie. Now, he goes in, Malcolm goes into so much more detail so much anecdotal evidence, so much research that's involved. It's a tremendous book, and if you do have time, uh, I would encourage you to uh, read it. I think it would be tremendously eye-opening. It is a fantastic book, Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. One of the problems that we have with biblical counseling, and we have a, a lot of them. Now, now, let me state on the front end, I am a fan of, of biblical counseling or the idea of it, uh, but I've also been a critic of it, and it, it keeps getting me in hot water. But I want to deal honest with, honestly with what I perceive, whether it's in biblical counseling or even communicating to someone that you really can't know if a person has changed or not, I think sometimes we can avoid the truth, which can end up causing us harm. And so I, I'm not disparaging. I'm a fan of biblical counseling. The whole worldview of biblical counseling has transformed my life in phenomenal ways. And I've built a career and a ministry, you know, helping people to do soul care. But I also see problems within biblical counseling, methodology, philosophy within the movement. And so I am a fan, but I'm also a, a critic as well. Biblical counseling is a sub-biblical process of soul care that the Bible does not teach. Now, when I say sub-biblical 
I do not mean unbiblical. Those are two different things. Subbiblical is not the best biblical process. It is subbiblical, but not so low that it's unbiblical. So please listen to what I'm saying. Biblical counseling is a subbiblical process of soul care that the Bible does not teach. If you're beholding to the biblical counseling model, you're going to run into many problems. And one of those problems is looking for change during the brief window of time that you're meeting with someone. You see, biblical counseling, now what is the model that the Bible teaches? It's discipleship. Discipleship is an, ex, it's an expanded window. In fact, there's no end to discipleship in a person's life until glorification, until they meet Jesus. And so discipleship is not a brief window of time, but biblical counseling is. And that's one of the problems that makes biblical counseling a sub-biblical, not un, but sub-biblical process. And the Bible doesn't teach biblical counseling the way that we have built out an entire worldview and system of it. The Bible teaches discipleship. But one of the problems is that if you're looking for change, this is one of the reasons that biblical counseling is sub-biblical, is that if you're looking for change during a brief window of time when you're meeting with that individual, you're going to run into all sorts of problems. Let me give you a few. First of all, repentance is a gift from God, and it's not a guarantee during the counseling session. Most of the people that I've ever counseled within a biblical counseling window, and I say biblical counseling window, what I mean is it's an artificial construct that has been set up to meet with a person for a limited time. And so it can be six sessions, it can be 16 sessions, it can be six weeks, it can be 16 weeks, but it is a counseling window. It has a definitive start date and it has a stop date. That's not how repentance works because we can't grant repentance. It's not like, come on, lucky sevens, you are in the window. I'm going to meet with you for six weeks in this counseling window, and you're going to repent. You're going to change. No, that's not how it works, and the Bible doesn't teach that. In Timothy 2, 24, 25, we know that God grants repentance, and it's not a guarantee that God will grant repentance during this short counseling window. Now, what can happen is that the biblical counselor can start looking for, like, well, they've changed. They've, they've changed. I mean, they're, they're going to, they're attending their church meeting. They're reading the Bible. They're praying with their wife. They're doing all these service activities or whatever. And I'm not poo-pooing those things. That is fantastic. But what you're looking at is the externalization of Christian works and disciplines. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it is a transformed heart. Read Matthew 23, where Jesus gives his most scathing critique of people who look good on the outside, but they were dead on the inside. Now, again, don't jump over here in the ditch of cynicism and suspicion and live that way. We can't live fear-centered or cynic Centered, but we also can't be naive. And so when you run a person into a counseling window, there could be a temptation on the counselor's part to, to see what is not really real. 
How many times has a person been released from a biblical counseling season and returned back to uh, whatever office they had in the church or whatever leadership position they had in the church because they have changed? You can't know if they have changed. And that, that is what makes biblical counseling dangerous at that point. And you want to be very, very careful about the person that you're helping because there, there are casualties of war and, and there, are, there are people that will be impacted if, if we don't deal with this person uh, in, in the most biblical way. And biblical counseling can be good. It can be part of the discipleship process. That's good if it's part of, uh, but if, if this is the mechanism and the measurement that we're making to see if someone is transformed, then you've set yourself up in an inferior model that can never ferret out whether they have truly changed or not. And so one reason of looking for change within this this counseling window is, first of all, repentance is a gift from God. It's not something that we can grant. Two, you can start looking for signs of change, never knowing if the person has changed. And when you start, you ask the biblical counselor, has he changed? They'll give you a list. Well, he came in like this, and now he's acting like this, or he's doing all of these things now that he wasn't doing before. He appears to be humble to me. He appears to be teachable. He's a question asker. I mean, he's, he's hitting all the beats. And again, I'm not saying that cynically, uh, but these are things that he's doing. But what are you really saying? But, but has he changed? Because everything that they're going to describe to you is going to be the external manifestations of what change should be like, but it doesn't speak to the internal manifestation of heart transformation. And so, one, repentance is a gift from God. Two, you will look for signs of change, never knowing that the person has changed or not. Number three, you might release the person too soon, thinking that they have changed. Number four, any person can manipulate the change process by appearing to have changed. It has happened so many times. We see it in our culture all the time. Uh, when a person is busted for doing whatever it is that they were doing wrong, and then they go to uh, court and, and they, they seem so uh, docile and compliant and, and humble, uh, they, they, they're crying tears. And again, without a lens of cynicism, just looking at it objectively, does that mean that they're... No, we have to look deeper than that. The counselor's job is to water and plant while trusting that God will bring change, but you cannot measure that change until more time than the counseling season has passed. You need more time to know that if this person is legitimately changed. You need more than six weeks. You need more than 16 weeks. So let me give you a case study. Let's say that Biff commits adultery. Now, for the sake of this case study, it is objective. Biff commits adultery. And so Mabel has two options before her. She could legitimately, biblically divorce Biff. Boom, the marriage is over. Or she can choose to reconcile. Those are her two options that are on the table. And a biblical counselor would lay those out. Not recommending divorce. 
I don't think that I have ever recommended divorce in an adultery situation in my life, but I've never hidden that card from uh, the victim of uh, the person who uh, is married to the adulterer. I've, I've never hidden that from them. Uh, I lay it out plainly and say, you know, you have the option to divorce. I'm not recommending it. Uh, I know in Matthew 19, we have a passage of Scripture that would support that. But I also know from Genesis, the Revelation, we have a book that is all about reconciliation. Uh, The whole book is about reconciliation, even though this one slice of the book in Matthew 19, you can uh, get a divorce. And so those are your two options. You can get a divorce here and, and be biblical. Uh, or you can reconcile in light of adultery. And so I always want to put the accent mark on reconciliation and hope for the best. Uh, But again, I never hide the divorce card from them because that is an option for them. And so Biff commits adultery. Mabel has two options. And so she wants to know if Biff has changed. The counselor says that he sees signs of change. I mean, Biff came in and he he confessed that this is what he did. By the way, he was caught. I mean, he didn't like, he wasn't forthcoming. I mean, the reason that he's in counseling is because he was caught. Uh, he didn't commit a sin and, and then was convicted of it and, and just wanted to come clean. Uh, so there's that. But now he's in counseling and There seems to be signs of humility. He's not pushing back on anything. He's receiving everything that that I'm sharing with him and walking him through. He seems to be quite teachable. He has new habits, and here's a list of his habits. And so I would say, yeah, I mean, Biff has changed. But has he changed? And that is the issue. And I'll say it again. You cannot know for sure because anyone could practice new things during a a short season. And so Mabel says if he has changed, then she wants to pursue reconciliation. But there is a problem here. Let's say I'm going to meet with Bill for six weeks or I'm going to meet with Bill for six months. Biff can stand on his head for six months. I mean, if that is the formula, if that is the pathway to reconciliation, if I am Biff and I care about my reputation, care about what other people think, kind of love my wife, but, you know, I got problems, don't want to, like, put this on the children and like, six months, and this is the biblical counseling window, I can stand on my head for six months. I can tick the boxes. Uh, I can change. But have I? You see, the problem with adultery in this case study is that the adultery is the lesser of the issue. Now, let me caveat that because I've gone through this, by the way. Uh, My ex-wife committed adultery. I've walked through this. This is a story that I've shared uh, many times. Uh, It's all over our website. There's a lot of information on it. I've gone through this, and so when I say adultery is the lesser issue, I don't mean it's, it's less acute. 
Actually, adultery is the most painful issue. Adultery is a devastating issue from a pain perspective. In many ways, you don't ever get over adultery. Uh, It is like the scarlet A is placed on your chest, and you're not the one that committed adultery. You live with the reverberations of adultery for a long time and maybe uh, throughout your entire life. And so when I say adultery is the lesser of the issue, I don't mean it's less acute. No, it is the most painful of everything that I'm going to list here. But I'm talking about Biff, not the victim of adultery. And as far as Biff's transformation is concerned, adultery is the peak of the iceberg. It is the very top of the iceberg. But as you begin to move down that iceberg, the problems get wider and the problems get deeper and the problems become more complex and they're harder to discern. And that's what makes biblical counseling sub-biblical because there's so much involved here outside or in addition to the adultery. And so when you get underneath the adultery, what you're going to have is deception because adultery is a lie. Adultery adultery necessitates deception. You have to live a lie. You have to tell lies. You have to do deceptive things. You have to hide things. You have to, uh, you know, Oh, your phone, and you have to have alternate emails, and, and you uh, lie about your time management. You were here, but you said you were there, and you take time off for work, and you spend money that you, that you have to hide, or there's so many other things. And so adultery is the tip of the iceberg, but now you have this liar, a pattern of lies that is very broad, and not only do you have a pattern of lies, but you have a person who has, uh, begin, if they're in a Christian environment, then they begin to dull their conscience. They sit in the church meeting on Sunday and they hear a message on, on adultery or hear a message on telling the truth and being transparent and honest and so forth. And they know in their heart of hearts that they're living a lie. They have to tone their conscience down. They have to dull their conscience. And so now you have a person to, that has a dull to hardened conscience who's living a lifestyle of of deception. All of that is underneath the adultery. That's what I mean, that the adultery is the lesser. The adultery is the fruit of a whole lot of other things that have been going on for a long time. And so you have adultery, and then underneath that you have deception, and then underneath that you have adult to harden conscience, and then underneath that you have a lifetime of shaping influences that have captured this person's soul. You see, adultery was not the start of this sin pattern in his life. Adultery is the end of the road, but that road is long, and that is a multi-decade road. Let's say Biff is 40 years old. Well, I would say that probably 30 of those years, Biff has been living some kind of deceptive life. Uh, 
that led him to the place of wanting to uh, commit adultery. And you will find that there are adverse shaping influences that come from three primary areas. Adam, he has fallen like all of us. Adam is a powerful adverse shaping influence. And then there have been people in his life that have impacted him adversely, like his father, for example, and there's many more. And then the decisions that he has made, his own shaping influences because of his own dumb decisions that he has made. Those are three primary shaping influences that have been in his life and they've been running along under the surface of his life. And by the way, what you're going to see with the deception is you're going to see this two-tier person. You're going to see the representative of who he presents himself to be to his wife, to his pastor, to his small group, to his employer, to his children, to his community. That is all a representative. This is who I want you to see. But underneath, you have this other person that's been living a deceptive life. It is a trained liar. And that's why I say that the adultery is the lesser problem. But this deeper issue is the deception a hardened conscience, and then patterns of behavior that reach back decades of shaping influences that have captured his soul, habituating him into a life of deceit and vice. And so he goes into a, a six-week counseling session, and the biblical counselor says, he's changed. Wow. That's, what, that's one of the reasons biblical counseling uh, is sub-biblical, sub, not unbiblical. And so when they talk about change, what they're talking about almost all the time is amputatable things, amputatable things that they can cut out of their life and then replacement parts that they can add to their life. And so I was reading porn. I'm reading my Bible. I was sleeping with someone. I'm sleeping with my wife. I was going to bars. I'm going to church meetings. And so it's amputatable things and it's replacement parts. And so if that is all we're talking about, then yes, the person has changed. What the biblical counselor will not see and what the biblical counselor and everybody else cannot measure is mortification sins. Amputatable sins are external. If your hand offends you, cut it out. Off. If your eye offends you, pluck it out, etc. That's the easy part of all of the change process. Mortification sins, as we see in uh, Romans eight thirteen, mortify the deeds of the body to make dead, to take the vitality out of it, to suck the life out of that this poison that is in him that I have described underneath the adultery, the adultery is the amputatable part. But once you get underneath the adultery, you have deception, hardened conscience. Uh, you have shaping influences. You have a habituated lifestyle that has led to deceit and vice. That's not going to go away like snapping your finger or switching a light on or off. That's the amputatable part. Mortification sins are deeper. They are in the heart. And if you have a person with multi-decade influences that has led to adultery, well, then you're going to need a long, expanded window to know if this person's changed, not six weeks, not six months. Now, 
that creates a huge problem for Mabel. It's like, wow, what do I tell Mabel? Mabel, you want to reconcile, and we're hoping that we could wrap this up in six weeks, six months, 12 months. But the truth is, I was talking to Rick Thomas, and he said, you can't tell if anybody has ever changed. Now, you could present that to her in a cynical way, and I don't recommend that you do that. No, see, the most apparent problem in this scenario, and I'm sure you picked up on it, is is the human-centered nature of it. Everybody's looking horizontally. They're measuring humans. In this case, we're measuring Biff. That, that is a human-centered approach. The biblical counselor is measuring Biff. Has he changed? Well, I don't. hopefully they'd come to the place that I don't really know, honestly. I hope he has. Hope for the best. Mabel, take him on home. Hope it works out for you. And so the human, the problem here is the human-centered nature of it. And I'll give you three illustrations. That One, we're measuring humans. What are we measuring? Number two, we're assessing depravity. We're, we're, we're looking at depravity. Depravity is complex. Depravity is deep. Depravity is tricky. There's you a deep theological word right there. And so we're measuring humans. The more specifically, we're measuring human depravity. And then number three, we're looking through fallen lenses. You see, we are depraved. We are not entirely sanctified yet. And so the very filter that we are looking through is depraved. It is discolored in some way. And so, yeah, if, you, if you're looking for change, you can see it. You, 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 can, find, you can find evidence of change uh, if you want. It's fallen people measuring fallen people to see uh, if they can reconcile. And so that's not the first question that we want to ask Mabel. And that's not the point of departure for Mabel. The first question that Mabel has to ask is not horizontal at all. It is vertical. It's a faith question. But see, the way that is set up now, the faith question is faith in Biff. Has he changed? If he has changed, I will reconcile. If he has not changed, I will divorce. I have faith, meaning I believe. I believe that I will reconcile if he's changed. I believe that I will divorce if he hasn't changed. Do you see how horizontal that question is and how wrong-headed it is? Now, she needs to ask a faith question, but it can't be about Biff first. The faith question to move forward has to be faith in God, not in what Mabel and her counselors can see, not in what Mabel and her counselors, what they think they can see. And so if she's focusing on Biff changing as to whether she believes she should move forward or not, she has wrong-headed faith. It's in a depraved man looking through a depraved lens. And if she really wants to reconcile bad enough, then she will see what she wants to see, and she will reconcile. And, and so it's wrong-headed faith on Mabel's part. It's wrong-headed faith on her counselor's part. 
they're, they're commending her wrongheaded faith that, that, yeah, well, this is what we see, and so, yes, you should proceed based on what you see. Do you see how dangerous that is? Everyone is looking for Biff to prove that he has changed so they can determine if this is a risk worth taking. Mabel needs to determine what God would have her to do because she cannot trust Biff. She can't trust Biff. She can trust God. Does she believe it's the right thing to do to restore her marriage based on her interaction with God and how God is leading her? Now, perhaps she may go into it. She believes that we're going to pursue reconciliation and God is going to stabilize me because he will. I am trusting him. Biff, he's a jerk. I don't know what Biff is going to do. It may go well, may not go well. But for me and my house, we are going to follow and serve the Lord. And then if Biff blows it up, Six months down the road, well, maybe I'll get a divorce at that time. But that is a faith question that's tied vertically to God. Perhaps Mabel will discover that he has not changed. After they get out of this six-month window and realize that Biff hasn't changed because he couldn't stand on his head but for six months, And now here we are two years in, and Biff is going back to his own pattern. Well, now there's another set of questions that we're going to ask, and we have better answers now. It's not as subjective as it was before. These are weighty decisions that Mabel has to make, and she cannot place the weight of her faith for her decision in Biff's behavior because there is no way in the ultimate sense, to know if mortification has taken place at the level of the heart. She needs time. Therefore, she needs faith in God. And everybody needs to stop looking horizontally. And, and they need to expand the biblical counseling window and make it a discipleship model that goes ad infinitum and hold Biff accountable and get into these long habituated patterns that go back multiple decades. And all the while, Mabel has to make a faith-filled decision as she interacts with God. I'm going to fight for my marriage, and we'll see where it goes, and I know that God will stabilize me. That's a big decision. But if you base it on Biff's behavior— and what you think you see or what, he, what he's presenting to you, you're basing it on a man who has lived a dualistic life for decades. And can he do that for six months? Yeah, probably can, probably will, more than likely, many times. And then again, he could be like David, and he's truly repented and he's truly transformed. But you're not going to know in six weeks or six months. This is episode 454, The Risky Business of Looking for Change. Thanks so much, and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.